Well, good morning. My name is Sergey. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to Romans 8. This summer we have been considering the good life in Christ. As it's described in this just wonderful, wonderful chapter, familiar to many of us. And so we've looked at this life in Christ as, as a life of freedom. Freedom from condemnation, from guilt. As a life of harmony between flesh and spirit. God putting us back together the way we're supposed to be. A life of acceptance as God's adopted children. A life of anticipation of future glory. A life of intimate conversation with God through His Holy Spirit. And so today, we will see that our life in Christ is a life of purpose. It's a life of purpose. We're looking at this text. It's one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, Romans 8:28. Many of us would just say the reference when we want to encourage someone. And so today we're going to deep, uh, dig deeper into this text and see how that affects our life, how our life becomes a life of purpose based on this this text. Let me pray first. I think this is a subject that needs the Holy Spirit's attention and for me to be carefully explaining this text for our edification. Our Father, we pray that you would help us now with your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. And because we're talking about subjects that are often very painful for us, and some of us are in the midst of this pain, I pray that you would help me not to take it on flippantly, but rather that you would give me discernment in how to communicate this in a way that's encouraging, that builds us up, that reveals the treasures in Christ that are available to us through your Spirit. Lord, I pray for your help And I pray for you to do a special work in our hearts this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, crucified and risen and coming again. Amen. All right, well, this is how I'd like to approach this text that Sandy read so well for us. We'll reflect on a promise that's here. The promise, a very comforting, encouraging promise. Then secondly, we will see how that promise is rooted in God's plan, in His comprehensive plan for us. Thirdly, we will see how that promise results in a changed perspective. And lastly, we will finish by by putting forth a conclusive proof for the truth of that promise. So if you're taking notes, it should be easy for us. There are four points they're alliterated. There's a promise, a plan, a changed perspective, and a proof. Promise, plan, perspective, and proof. So what is this promise? Let's start there. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Let's make sure we understand what this says. All things work for the good of certain people. 
all things, all-inclusive, work together for the absolute good of a certain group of people. There's a limitless all things, and there's a limiting group to which this promise applies. All things. Let me list a few things, okay? I'm not going to list everything, but I think I'm going to hit some things that we have dealt with. Maybe you individually, maybe we as a church, maybe you're dealing with some of this right now. Depression, cancer, bankruptcy, loss of a loved one, disability, miscarriage, betrayal, divorce, car accidents, abuse, abandonment, seizures, house fire, tornado, arthritis. We can make that list much longer than I have. But all those things are included in the all things of this promise. Anything that happens to us, anything painful, difficult, devastating is included in this list. Anything from a broken bone to a broken heart is on that list. Anything from a lost ATM card to a stolen identity is on this list. Anything from a runaway pet to an unfaithful spouse. There's a spectrum. But everyone is dealing with something that's on that list and whatever you're dealing with is on this list. We moved uh, to this area about seven weeks ago. Man, it seems longer (laughs) than seven weeks. And as you move to a different place, you have to set up your life so you have to get insurance and health care and you have to uh, get home insurance, all that stuff you, you, you work through and not fun for me. Maybe for some of you it's fun. But you get exposed to a lot of horrible scenarios that are possible in your life. When you uh, get insurance, when you talk you know, about health care, you have to figure out which policy covers what. And so you have to realize that there's all these awful things that can happen to you and to your children. And so you find a policy that, that hopefully covers all of it. When you get uh, car insurance, you have to think about the worst possible scenario which is hurting someone or killing someone. You don't want to think about it, but when you get insurance, you have to think through and make sure that what you're getting will cover that in the unlikely event that it does happen. When you think about home insurance, you have to imagine things that you didn't think were possible in this area. Earthquakes, policy. We have a policy against an earthquake because it might happen. And so you think through all these awful scenarios in your life, and then you look at Romans 8.28, and you're saying all of that is included. All the lists, all the checklists that we've done for our various policies, and you have all done, are on this list of all things that somehow work together for my good and for your good. All those bad, difficult, painful things that we have listed and 
those that we haven't listed, those that we have dared, have not dared to list, are included on this list and work together for our good. That's the promise. Whatever it is, God is working that towards your good. All these awful things are somehow in God's plan are beneficial to us. They all lead to something good. That's the promise. But it doesn't apply to everybody. It applies for those who love God, those who have been called according to His purpose. It's a, it's a very limited group of people. Only those that are believers can claim this promise. Only Christians can say, this one is for me. This is not for unbelievers. We have to be very careful to say, this is not wishful thinking. This is not just saying, somehow it's all going to turn out well in the end. Somehow it's all going to be all right. That's not what this means. This is specific to a group of people that are called believers. Paul defines them as those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I'll explain that a little bit later. But it's Christians. He's talking about us. He's talking about believers. And for believers, no matter how awful what's happening to you right now is, and think about what's happening to you right now, put that in that list. It's working for your good in God's plan. There's a comedian called, this is a hard transition, okay, so bear with me. There's a comedian called Louis Black. He's an angry comedian. You may have, may have seen him on TV. He's an atheist, very comfortable with his lack of religion and faith. And yet, he's not disparaging towards religious people. And so he was asked in a recent interview, why are you, are you not disapproving of those who practice religion? You don't believe it. You don't think it's true. Why are you sort of supportive of people who are religious? And he said, he said, faith is good. He said, I once had faith for a year when I felt like everything was going to work out, that things were going to come together, that things were going to be okay. And he said, that was good. And so if anyone has that kind of faith, I want them to keep it. Now this is an atheist realizing the value of appropriating a promise like that. Now he's talking in very general terms. We are not talking in general terms. We're talking about believers who are in Christ, whose promise for everything, everything working out for their good is rooted in a very specific plan of God. So, but he, speaking in general terms, realizes that's a good thing. To have faith, to believe that somehow there is hope that things will work out in the end, is good. But it's even better in our case, because we're going to tie it to the very plan of God, very purpose of God. And as we make that connection, you will see how it's so much better than this sort of ethereal, you know, nebulous thing where, where we just hope it works out. No, this is different. This promise is more specific for the people of God. So let's look at the plan of God. Verse 29. The promise we looked at. Now, you look at verse 29 and it starts with the word for. For meaning since or because. In other words, verses 29 and 30 give a basis, a reason for verse 28. For Christians, all things work together for good because they are part of God's comprehensive plan. There's a connection, there's a logical connection. No difficulty, no painful experience, no so-called tragedy is outside of God's plan for His people. 
Let's look at God's plan specifically. God is good to us, and He reveals what His plan is. And so let's pay attention how God works. What are His purposes? Laid out for us in this text, there are five phases. There are five verbs that we need to pay attention to. For new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I'm working through this text. Number one, God foreknew us. What does that mean? We don't use that word, right? Nobody says, I foreknew you. No, it doesn't work like that. What does it mean? Foreknew means he knew beforehand, but not just knew about us. There is a relational commitment beforehand. God knew us before we existed. This is what it means. Like God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's relational. It's not that I knew you were going to come. He's saying, I knew you. One commentator translates this as foreloved. For new could be translated as foreloved. God is saying, I loved you beforehand. I loved you before time. Let it sink in a little bit. Before you were you, God loved you. Before there was anything to love about you because you weren't there, God committed to loving you. This is how far back it goes. When we're talking about God's plan, it's not reactive. It's God determining from long, long time ago, before there was time to love you. He foreloved you. He foreknew you. Relationally, He made a commitment to love us. God's plan starts with a choice to love you. Now the second word, God predestined us. What is that? Another word. Nobody uses that anymore. Predestined means to, to mark out beforehand, to predetermine, to ordain. Now, this is not a sermon on predestination. I don't want to get too distracted on this, but I do want you to see what Scripture says. Whatever your philosophical or theological objections might be, whatever personal or cultural sensibilities this doctrine might offend in my heart, whatever challenges to other doctrines like the human will, it might raise. The Bible teaches, this verse teaches, that God predestined us. That God chose to love us and then He chose to bless us in a particular way. God did that for you. This is a comforting thing. This is an edifying thing. If we come to grips with this doctrine, it encourages you. But it's in Scripture. If you're wrestling with that, please keep wrestling. You know, you don't need to settle. I mean, wrestle with it, work through it, talk to other believers that 
might be able to help you with that. But Scripture teaches that God chose us, He ordained that we would be something. What is that something? What is the purpose in this? Not just randomly picking us and saying, no, you are preordained. He's picking us for something. He's choosing us towards something. So we would be conformed to the image of His Son. The point of predestination is so we would become something else. So we would become like Jesus. 1 John 3, verse 2. We know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. That's the goal. That's the end game. We will one day when Jesus returns be like Him. We will bear His image fully, completely. Even now, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Even now we're being changed into His image. You were chosen for this. You were chosen to be changed and to be changing into the image of Christ. Jesus then becomes the firstborn among many brothers. One commentator says, It was always in God's plan that there might be many in His family. Children who look to Christ as the firstborn and rejoice that they are children of the same Father. That is part of God's plan. God wanted a bigger family. God wanted Jesus to be the firstborn, the eldest, and yet be among many brothers and sisters. So God foreloved us. God predestined us. And now, number three, God called us. Now, call here refers to the effectual call to salvation. Effectual meaning that it was received and it was responded to. There are different kinds of calls in Scripture. There's a general call. When Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Anyone is invited. And yet, when somebody responds to that call, that becomes effective. Now you can say, I am one of the called ones. I have come to Jesus. I am not putting responsibility on the human being. Because it depends on the authority of the caller what the response is many times. I read in one commentary or a dictionary, it says that friends invite, kings summon. You don't get invited by a king, you get summoned. The president calls you, you show up. You don't say, eh, let me check my schedule. You cancel everything else because the authority of the caller is such that he summons you. And so you respond. When you come to Christ, and if, if you come to Christ, if you respond to that call, you have been summoned. God has called you with all the authority of God. He says, I want you, I want you to come to me. And so it becomes an effectual call, an effective, a call that's been responded to. Number four, God justified us. He foreknew, He predestined, He called, and He justified us. To justify means to vindicate, to declare us to be acceptable to Him, to declare us to be righteous in His eyes, to put us in a proper relationship with Himself. Now you see the progression, don't you? God said, 
before you are, I have committed to love you. Now I'm going to choose to bless you in a particular way. I'm going to predestine you to become like my son Jesus. Now that that's done, those decisions have been made, I'm going to call you and you're going to respond because I'm going to summon you. I have that kind of authority. And when you have responded, I am justifying you. I have made you acceptable to me now. And then finally, the last one, God glorified us. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing because I don't feel glorified, especially on Tuesdays. Sundays are a little better. I haven't been glorified yet. I know that's coming. When Jesus comes back and I see him face to face, I shall be like he is. But now I am not that way. I believe I've been justified through faith in Christ alone by grace of God. I believe that. I believe that I've been called and predestined and foreloved. But I've not been glorified yet. So why is it that Paul says glorified as if it's already happened? He puts it in the same tense as all the other verbs here. Justification happened. Glorification has not happened yet. And yet, it reads as if it already happened. The reason is because it's God laying out His plan. Let me say this again. This is God laying out His plan. Who can thwart it? God looks around and says, this is as good as, a, as if it's already happened. It has the certainty of the past tense, even though it is yet to come. Because God has determined that. Who's going to go against God? If God has decided that He will glorify you, He will glorify you. Even you can't mess it up. Would you go against God? What are your chances when you would go against God and say, I will not be glorified? And God said, just as I have summoned you, I will glorify you. There's certainty in this because God is in charge. And so this is the plan from foreloving to predestination to calling to justification, inviting us into a relationship with Him, to glorification. Do you know where we are in that process? We're in the one that's, that, that the apostle skipped, sanctification. He's not saying we're being sanctified, even though we are, because that's what the whole passage is about. All things working for your good is sanctification. He's saying that you have been justified and you are not yet glorified. And in this time, you are being assaulted with all sorts of things that are hard and difficult. And yet all those things are working together for your good because you are going to be glorified. Don't think that somehow you fell out of the process. No, you're right where you're supposed to be. I am right where I'm supposed to be on that Tuesday when I don't feel glorified. Because God is working. And he's drawn me to himself and he's putting, yes, difficult circumstances in my life so that I could be sanctified in light of my future glorification. God's purpose will be accomplished. That's comforting, isn't it? 
that we are in the midst of it and we interpret whatever is happening as part of that process. So whatever is happening in your life, that is sanctification. I use that term because some of us are familiar with it. That means becoming more holy. It means becoming different, becoming more like Jesus. We are in that process of becoming. From glory to glory, from one degree to another degree. And the way it happens is by God introducing difficult circumstances into your life and saying all those things work together for your good. So the promise of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of the Christians is rooted in God's comprehensive plan. That's why it's so precious. That's why it's so secure. It's not just we're hoping it works out. We know it's going to work out because it's part of God's plan and who can thwart His purposes. Now as an illustration, I took some time on maybe a little bit more doctrinal issues. They're important to understand. They're part of Scripture. But I'm going to illustrate it now from a life of one believer. I want to tell you about Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson lived in the latter part of the 1800s in England. After college, he moved to London to pursue writing. He was a brilliant poet. A brilliant poet. And yet he got addicted to opium and for many years lived in extreme poverty in Charing Cross. And if you read his poems, you will find references to the river and to to Charing Cross and his homelessness and how he he processes what's happening to him through the lens of the gospel. He lived a very difficult life. Even after being discovered and published and helped, there are people who eventually found him and helped him He died at the age of 47, a young man. His most famous poem is called The Hound of Heaven. Have you heard about The Hound of Heaven? You may not have heard about Francis Thompson, but you may have heard that referenced. The Hound of Heaven. This is this idea that God is pursuing us. Even in the squalor of poverty and homelessness, he felt that God was after him, that God wasn't going to let him go. He almost committed suicide, but he didn't. Because God, this hound of heaven, was on his trail. And so he writes this beautiful poem, and I'll read a couple parts from it to give you a feel for how a believer processes hardship in a very difficult situation and does it through the lens of the gospel. But I encourage you to read it. You can easily find it online. This is how the poem starts. Remember, he's imagining that this hound of heaven is pursuing him even as he is running away from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest 
me. See, as he's running, I mean, this is, a, this is a beautiful poem. As he's running, he continues to avoid God. He's continuing to reject him. He looks for stability. He looks for shelter. He looks for contentment apart from God. But the hound of heaven is not going to let him be. And so he's not going to be happy. He's not going to find shelter apart from God. He's not going to find stability apart from God. God is on his trail. God is not going to let him go. Because God says there is no fulfillment outside of me. There is no refuge. There is no peace. All things betray you who betrays me, he says. God is working all things for our good, even as we are running away from him. This is an amazing truth. Listen to how the poem ends. Rise, clasp my hand and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly? Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. God says, you've been running away from me, but you are running towards me. You're blind and weak, and you are seeking something that you can only find in me, and I am here. Rise, grab my hand, come to me. And the hound of heaven gets the poet. He responds. He comes to Jesus. He realizes finally that his gloom, this hardship he's in, is just the shadow of God's hand that is offering love to him. This is Romans 8.28. He's saying all this hardship is actually for my good. It's the shadow of God's hand over me. I thought it was gloomy. But it's the shadow of God's hand that loves me, caresses me, draws me towards him. Finally, the hound of heaven overtakes him. Now, if that's all true, if there's a promise that is rooted in God's comprehensive plan that God pursues relentlessly in our lives because we are His, He has laid hold on us, that should change our perspective, shouldn't it? If we believe it, if it's true, we should live differently. We should see suffering differently. And perspective is very, very important in life. Imagine you're walking down the street. Out of the corner of your eye in passing, you see a window of an office building is open on the first floor, and you see a man in a, in a white gown of some sort is leaning over a child, a toddler, with what looks like pliers in his hand. And deep into the mouth of the toddler, he is inflicting tremendous pain on him. What is happening? Well, it's a matter of perspective. Because you may say, this is a sick person who is, who is torturing a child. I better get in there. Or you can say, it's a dentist helping a child. You see, perspective is crucial. And so if God is a good God, He is helping. 
if God is an evil God, he is hurting. This is why the way Christians are defined here is along the lines of love and grace. We are defined as those who love God and those who have been called according to his purpose. So what is this perspective based on? It's based on who you are in Christ. If you love God, your response to suffering is going to be trust. You're going to say, whatever it feels like or seems like, because God is good and because I love Him, I will trust Him that it is good what's happening right now. If a child loves his mother, he should be able to trust her that when she takes candy away from him, it's actually done in the best interests of the child. If the child doesn't trust the parent, that seems cruel. If you trust God, if you love Him, whatever is happening in your life becomes a way for Him to help you, even though it hurts. If you don't trust God, if you don't love Him, it becomes another way that you would say, God doesn't love me. Look at this. Why would He do that? When I think of trust rooted in the love of God, I think of George Mueller. George Mueller was, you know, many of you know who he is. He's 19th century founder of several orphanages in Bristol, England. He prayed in faith. He prayed in the love of God. He prayed in trust. When his wife was dying, this is how he prayed. He prayed, Lord, I know that you do not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. We read that in the beginning. Psalm 84, 11. He starts with Scripture and he says, I know that you are the kind of God that does not withhold anything good from your children. As far as I can tell, by your grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I am walking uprightly. Therefore, if healing my wife is a good thing, I know you will not withhold it. But if you choose not to heal her, I accept it by faith as a good thing from your hand. You get the logic that is rooted in this promise, that is rooted in the plan of God, that is based on His love towards God? He trusts Him. And He says, God, I know that you will only do what's good. That's who you are, and I love you. So if you do this, this is good. I'm praying for something, but I'm praying a qualified prayer. I'm saying, if I'm seeing it right, because I may not be, but I know who you are, so if, if I love you, and I know you love me, so if you do this, I will know that it's good. And if you don't do it, I know there's a better thing. And I will trust you to define that. That takes faith, but it's rooted in your trust and love towards God. What is your perspective in the midst of suffering. How do you take a difficult thing? If you love God, if it's you, if it's your identity that's been developing by the Holy Spirit, you say, God, I will trust you. I don't understand. John Shannon was praying, we don't understand God's plan a lot of times. And so we're praying for the best outcome, but we're also trusting that God would define that. For many of us, 
when you're in the midst of suffering, you realize whether you love God or you love God as a way to get to the things you really love. Is God who you want? Or do you want God because you can get other stuff that God has? Do you love your family? And so God, sort of a family values kind of God, so we'll co-op him to help us with our family issues. I love peace. I like to be happy. I like things to be okay. God is a God of peace, so I will go to him so I can get peace. But do I love God or peace better or more? When you lose your job, there's a question in your heart. Do I love this more than God? And you can't answer that question unless you're in the midst of suffering. Which is why God uses suffering to clarify, to sanctify who we are. And so when we are wrestling with this and we come to that point, we ask that question, who do I love? What do I love best? Let's pray that our answer is God. We say that though you take away everything else from my life, if I have you, this will have been absolutely worth it. Could we say that honestly? Not, not flippantly. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm coming across in any way light about this. This is not light because many of us are hurting. So I'm not downplaying the reality of the pain. But in the midst of that pain, can we say with Job, Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, you have to see what the Lord gave, what he took away. You have to process that. That's painful. But then you end with blessed be the name of the Lord. Because I love him, I will praise him. He is sufficient for me, though he takes away everything else. That's because we're not just people who love God, but we're people who've been called according to his purpose. We've been summoned by grace. That means you didn't do anything, I didn't do anything. God got us. The hound of heaven caught up with us. And so though we have responded in faith, but it's really God who draws us, it's God who gets us, it's God who changes us, it's all by grace, none of this is deserved. If it's true, then I say I don't deserve anything. If God takes something away from me, it wasn't mine. He gave it to me, He took it away from me, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the practical outworking of grace. If we are grace people who believe that we have not contributed to our salvation, that means anything you have is because God was happy to give it to you. And God is happy to take it away sometimes to give you something even greater Himself. Last point, and we'll wrap it up. You may be listening to this, and you're saying, okay, maybe a stubbed toe, a flat tire, a lost pet, I can see how that will teach me patience, that maybe will make me pray more. I can see the value of that. But what about losing your child? Not saying it lightly. What do you do? Could that be part of God's plan? Could a tragedy, a devastation like that, that's unimaginable, 
unthinkable happening to you, whatever else you want to put in that category, the big things, could that too be part of God's plan? Could that too be all things that work together for our good? There's one conclusive, decisive proof. And if we accept that, we can accept even the greatest tragedy as working for our good. How can I be so sure? Well, I'm sure of the proof. You can be sure of the proof as well. Because we know that the greatest tragedy that actually happened has turned out to be the best thing imaginable. We know it. What's the conclusive proof? It's the cross of Christ. What is the worst thing that could have happened? God coming to save us and we murder Him? Imagine the disciples standing around and saying, we, we thought God came to help us and how can that be? It doesn't make sense that God would die? That they would arrest Him? Try Him unfairly? And put Him on a tree? And He's dead? Imagine the despair and the hopelessness of the disciples. If you were talking to them then, and you were saying, hold on, this is actually a very good thing. They're going to say, how? I can't imagine. I can't imagine anything worse than this. So how could that be turned into something good, even marginally good? And yet, we know, right? And they know. They found out after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, they found out when Jesus came and hung out with them, all of them at different times, explaining to them what happened. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, they knew that this was the best thing that could happen. So they went from, I cannot imagine anything worse than this, to, I cannot imagine anything better than this. How does that happen? It's part of God's plan. Because God is orchestrating events. Because God supervises things. Because everything that happens, happens according to His good pleasure. And so the death of Christ, as tragic as it was, as violent, as shameful, as unexpected to everybody as it was, it was part of God's plan to redeem us, to save us, to bless the world. And so in His death, He conquered death for everyone in his death he conquered the world he conquered sin he gave us a guilt free life he gave us a life of harmony he gave us a life of anticipation a life of purpose all of that came from the cross and so if you like any part of your Christian life now it's good because it was so bad on the cross and so for us to think and again, I'm not saying it lightly, to look at a tragedy in our own lives and say, I can't imagine anything worse than this. I can't. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. You couldn't imagine anything worse than that. And look, it turns out to be the best thing. Now you can't imagine anything better. Now, in most of our tragedies, we're not going to see that till later. I understand that. 
We need patience. We need grace. We need the support of others. We need to grieve. All of that is still true. It's still in effect. But the perspective is, I love God. I've been called by grace. I'm going to trust Him that this thing, as in all things, is going to work together for my good. That helps us accept the promise of Romans 8, 28. I'm going to invite you to take communion together. We're going to serve it. We're going to pass it around. And as we sing, we're going to, we're going to take it. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll start singing, and, and the ushers will deliver elements to you. And as you do that, as you hold the bread, as you hold the cup, you are holding the conclusive proof that this promise is true. Your mind may be wrestling with all sorts of things, but you're going to taste it, and you're going to touch it. Let that fill your heart, and say, I love you. You've summoned me, and I'm hurting, but even this is a thing that works for my good in your comprehensive plan. If you're not a believer, you don't need reassurance of the promise. You need to be introduced to Jesus. And so I'm asking you to pass the plate. Don't take the cup and the bread. If you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus, but please, please, please take Jesus. This promise is true in Him. A life of purpose is available to you in Him. If He is calling you, if the hound of heaven has been on your trail, turn around, clasp His hand, rise. You've been looking for Him. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that Your Word is so clear. And yet I know the brokenness of my own heart, all the barriers that are between us and these encouraging, wonderful truths. So Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to help us accept this conclusive proof of the cross of Jesus, that all things actually do work together for our good. It's not just wishful thinking. It's, it's not some hope that has no root in reality. It is rooted in your plan, and who can thwart it? Lord, fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts with assurance that we can love you in the midst of suffering, that we can respond with a better perspective, that even now as we come to your table, we can receive the proof of your good intentions towards us. Father, we do remember what happened to Jesus. The awfulness of the cross. We remember. And yet we remember the resurrection too. We remember that Jesus came out of the grave victorious, having conquered all our enemies, and now by grace offers this new life to us, the good life, the different kind of life in Him through the Spirit. Let us embrace it. And so we confess our hesitation to love you, 
our skepticism towards your goodness, our doubts in the midst of suffering. We are sinners. We need your help. Help us. Help us to respond to all things in life the way we're supposed to in Christ. Help us by your Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's sing and take communion together.